a bitter hand-to-hand -hand fight along alleyways and inside houses. An inexperienced Allied division cut off and in danger of annihilation. A troop of horse artillery surrounded and forced to slash their way through the French cavalry. Today's episode of the Redcoat History Podcast is packed with drama. Put your pack down, sip some captured French grog, and lend me your ears as we're transported back to May 1811 and find Wellington and the Allied army with their backs to the wall once more, this time at the village of Fuentes de Onoro on the Spanish-Portuguese border. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast. It's the podcast and YouTube channel for military geeks. Men and women like us who love the smell of gunpowder with our history. If you're new to the show then please subscribe and share the links with friends as I'm really keen for more and more people to discover these amazing stories of the British Army. You might not know, but this show is available both as an audio podcast and also as a video on my YouTube channel, so you can choose whichever format is better for you. You can also register for my monthly dispatch by signing up over at redcoathistory.com newsletter. I'll be sending something out once a month. So as you may recall, last month's episode was all about the lines of Torres Vedras, the impressive engineering feat that stopped Marshal Massena's third French invasion of Portugal in its tracks north of Lisbon. Mark Thompson, who was the guest on that show, really is an expert on the lines, and I certainly learnt a lot from talking to him. If you haven't heard that episode, then I recommend going back and having a listen. Beyond his supply lines, with his army starving, Marshal Massena, the commander of the French invasion force, eventually had no choice but to retreat, leaving Portugal altogether in April 1811. He'd been pursued the entire way by the British and Portuguese, his rearguard having to fight hard at places like Pombal and Sabugal. So what was the situation now? Well, bear with me because this is all a bit complicated, but I need to try and explain some of the background to the Battle of Fuentes de Onoro. During the pursuit of Massena, Wellington had been forced to split his army and send Marshal William Carr Beresford with around 20,000 men south towards the border fortress city of Badajoz, which French Marshal Soult, advancing from Andalusia, had now captured after an embarrassing capitulation by the Spanish garrison. The rest of Wellington's troops were kept in the north to shadow Massena's battered army. Wellington, understandably, assumed that Massena would need a considerable amount of time to re-equip and reorganise his troops. But he underestimated the Marshal's abilities and his capacity to recover quickly. In fact, Massena, keen to impress Napoleon, had soon gathered close to 50,000 men and started marching them back towards Portugal to relieve and resupply the French garrison that was still besieged and holding out in the border fortress of Almeida. This fort was considered one of the keys to northern Portugal and it was imperative that the French were stopped from reaching it. When news of Massena's advance reached the British, Wellington was in the south close to Badajoz giving instructions to Beresford. He rushed back north to rejoin his troops. The soldiers were incredibly relieved when he finally returned to them on the 29th of April 1811. John Kincaid of the Rifles wrote, 
As a general action seemed now to be inevitable, we anxiously longed for the return of Lord Wellington, as we would rather see his long nose in the fight than a reinforcement of 10,000 men any day. Indeed, there was a charm not only about himself but all connected with him, for which no odds could compensate. It's a pretty good compliment really, isn't it? Wellington, realising that he had to stop Massena, instantly concentrated his divisions for a big battle. But the ground wasn't particularly favourable in the area. There were no steep ridge lines like he'd had at the Battle of Busaco, so he was forced to make the best of what terrain he could find. And that was a position by the village of Fuentes de Añoro, on the road along which the enemy were advancing between Ciudad Rodrigo in Spain and Almeida. Fuentes is just on the Spanish side of the border with Portugal and sits on the narrow Dos Casas River, which when I look on Google Maps now seems to be called Rivera del Campo or del Perocal. The village itself, though quite small, offered good defensive possibilities with plenty of solidly built cottages and a maze of stone walls which offered excellent cover to the defenders. But the Achilles heel of Wellington's position was the ground beyond his right flank, in particular to the south towards the village of Pozo Velho or Pozo Belho, three miles away. The flat ground was good cavalry country and could potentially allow the French to outflank the British. If their right flank was turned, then the British and Portuguese army could be cut off from their line of retreat back to Portugal. The other major cause for concern was the proximity of the Coa River, just six or seven miles behind the line. This meant that, heaven forbid, should the army be routed, they could be caught and slaughtered trying to cross to safety. None of this was ideal, but at least Wellington's left flank was secure. It was well protected by the banks of the river, which were much steeper there and rockier. Also, there was an old semi-derelict but still usable fort here called Fort Conception. This made an attack by the French on this part of the battlefield, the British left, unlikely. For the battle, Wellington was able to muster around 34,000 infantry, of which just 23,000 were British. The rest were mainly his reliable Portuguese and German regiments. He also had around 2,000 cavalry and 48 guns. He felt confident that this force was sufficient. The 5th and 6th divisions were tasked with holding that strong left flank, while the 1st, 3rd, the newly formed 7th division and the light division were deployed around Fuentes de Oñoro itself. Inside the village were 28 detached companies of light troops and riflemen. That's over 2,000 men in total. They were under the command of Lieutenant Colonel William Williams of the 5th 60th Rifles. If you're listening to the audio-only version of the podcast and want to see a map, then head over to redcoathistory.com where I've posted a video and some maps to help you better picture the location and the, and the troop dispositions. On the 3rd of May, Massena's army marched forward confidently and pushed back the Allied outposts quickly. Joseph Donaldson was a young Scottish soldier with the 94th Regiment of Foot. He later recalled, The morning was uncommonly beautiful, the sun shone bright and warm. The various adiferous shrubs, which were scattered profusely around, perfumed the air, and the woods rang with the songs of birds. The light division and the cavalry falling back followed by the columns of the French, the various divisions of the army assembling on the plain from different quarters, their arms glittering in the sun, bugles blowing, drums beating. 
the various staff officers galloping about to different parts of the line giving orders formed a scene which realised to my mind all that I had ever read of feats of arms or the pomp of war, a scene which no one could behold unmoved or without feeling a portion of that enthusiasm which always accompanies deeds of high daring. The French were now clearly visible to the Allied generals. Their second corps under General Jean Rainier deployed opposite Fort Conception. On their left was a single division of the 8th Corps, and then came the thick mass of five entire divisions from the 6th and 9th French Corps, forming up opposite the village of Fuentes de Oñoro. Massena clearly recognised the village as the key to the battle. This was where the really hard fighting was going to be. In the early afternoon, Massena ordered forward his men to clear the village. Donaldson viewed the fighting and later recalled a bizarre and amusing incident. The French skirmishers were covered in their advance by cavalry, in consequence of which ours were obliged to fall back. While a party of our German hussars covered their retreat, the cavalry now commenced skirmishing, the infantry keeping up an occasional fire. It was rather remarkable that the cavalry on both sides happened to be Germans. When this was understood, volleys of insulting language were exchanged between them. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper! One of our hussars got so enraged at something one of his opponents said that he dashed forward upon him into the very centre of their line. The French hussar, seeing that he had no mercy to expect from his enraged foe, wheeled about his horse and rode to the rear. The other, determined on revenge, still continued to follow him. The whole attention of both sides was drawn for a moment to these two, and a temporary cessation of firing took place. The French, staring in astonishment at our hussar's temerity, while our men were cheering him on. The chase continued for some way to the rear of their cavalry. At last, our hussar, coming up with him and fetching a furious blow, brought him to the ground. Awakening now to the sense of danger he had thrown himself into, he set his horse at full gallop back to his comrades. But the French, who were confounded when he passed, had recovered from their surprise, and, determined on revenging the death of their comrade, they joined in the pursuit, firing their pistols at him. The poor fellow was now in hazardous plight. They were every moment gaining on him, and he still had a long way to ride. A band of the enemy took a circuit for the purpose of intercepting him, and before he could reach the lines, he was surrounded and would have been cut to pieces had not a party of his comrades, stimulated by the wish to save so brave a fellow, rushed forward and just arrived in time by making the attack general to save his life and brought him off in triumph. Now that's a real war story, isn't it? No smart bombs, no cyber warfare, just two blokes flinging insults at one another and deciding to settle it with sabres. I tell you, men were men in those days. Anyway, back to the story, and the three thick French columns now advanced behind their skirmishers and pushed the Allied light troops back through the village. It was a brutal close-range engagement, a street fight at the point of the bayonet. In the narrow alleys it was hard to keep formation and for officers to maintain command and control. The fight became brutal and personal. 
Slowly, the 1st Brigade of Ferret's division managed to gain a foothold in the houses on the lower slope. Perhaps the French could have completely routed the British if they had not been distracted by plunder. Here's Donaldson again. The overwhelming force which the French now pushed forward on the village could not be withstood by the small number of troops which defended it. They were obliged to give way and were fairly forced to a rising ground on the other side where stood a small chapel. While retreating through the town, one of our sergeants who had run up the wrong street, being pushed hard by the enemy, ran into one of the houses. They were close at his heels and he had just time to tumble himself into a large chest and let the lid down when they entered and commenced plundering the house expressing their wonder at the same time as to the sudden disappearance of the Anglois, whom they had seen run into the house. During this time the poor sergeant lay sweating and half smothered. They were busy breaking up everything that came in their way, looking for plunder, and they were in the act of opening the lid of his hiding place when the noise of our men, cheering as they charged through the town, forced them to take flight. The lucky sergeant had been saved by a well-timed counter-attack. Lieutenant Colonel William Williams used his small reserve to drive the French back out of the village. But there was no time for the defenders to rest. French General Ferret immediately threw his second brigade forward, and once again the British were forced back. These fresh French soldiers stormed through the maze of houses and alleyways, nearly capturing the entire village. Wellington watching closely from the slopes behind the village, saw his opportunity, and at around 3pm ordered a counter-attack by the 71st, 79th and the 2nd, 24th regiments of foot. Thomas Pocock, a private from Glasgow, serving with the 71st Highland Regiment, recalled what happened next. Ish, I can't do a Scottish accent, you'll have to put it with my English one. Colonel Cadogan put himself at our head, saying, My lads, you've had no provision these two days. There is plenty in the hollow in front. Let us down and divide it. We advanced as quick as we could run, and met the light companies retreating as fast as they could. We continued to advance at double-quick time, our firelocks at the trail, our bonnets in our hands. They called to us, 71st, you'll come back quicker than you advance. That was nice, wasn't it? We soon came full in front of the enemy. The colonel cried, Here is food, my lads, cut away! Thrice we waved our bonnets and thrice we cheered, brought our firelocks to the charge and forced them back through the town. The British officers restraining their men still as deaf. Steady, lads, steady, is all you hear, and that in an undertone. The French had lost a great number of men in the streets. We pursued them about a mile out of the town, trampling over the dead and wounded but their cavalry bore down upon us and forced us back into the town. During this day, the loss of men was great. The counter-attack had been bloody but successful, but Massena wasn't finished for the day. He was intent on capturing the village. He ordered the battered survivors of Ferret's division to attack once more, this time supported by four further battalions from Marchand's division. Despite the large number of men, the advance faltered under the heavy fire of the redcoats. With the coming of the darkness, the day's fighting finally petered out. The French had suffered nearly 700 casualties trying to take the village, the defenders over 250, including their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Williams, who was badly wounded. 
During the day's fighting, Thomas Pocock said that his shoulder was black as coal after firing 107 musket balls throughout the day. That seems a huge number, doesn't it? But the battle was still far from over. Here's Pocock again with his description of the following morning. I was awakened by the loud call of the bugle an hour before day. Soon as it was light, the firing commenced and was kept up until about 10 o'clock when Lieutenant Stewart of our regiment was sent with a flag of truce for leave to carry off our wounded from the enemy's lines, which was granted, and at the same time they carried off theirs from ours. As soon as the wounded were all got in, many of whom had lain bleeding all night, the French brought down a number of bands of music to, to a level piece of ground about 90 or 100 yards broad that lay between us. They continued to play until sunset, whilst the men were dancing and diverting themselves at football. We were busy cooking the remainder of our sausages, bacon and flour. <laughs> that sounds like a great day out to me. Live music and good grub, what's not to love? But Massena hadn't given up the battle. He was, though, deep in thought and rethinking his plan of attack. Once again, as at Busaco, he had been taught how stubborn the British and Portuguese were in defence. As the two armies collected their wounded and listened to their bands play, he sent cavalry general Louis-Pierre Montbrun to recce the British right flank and discover if it could be turned. The result of his mission was promising. The villages of Nava de Aver and Pozzo Velo, just under four kilometres south of Fuentes de Añoro, were lightly held by the Allies and offered an opportunity for the French cavalry to be let loose. Upon hearing Montbrun's report, Massena decided to refocus his attack and after dusk he began deploying three infantry divisions and nearly all of his cavalry, that 17,000 infantry and 3,500 sabres, to take advantage of the Allied weakness. The new plan was to hit the Allied right flank hard at first light on the 5th of May and then, as Wellington inevitably rushed reserves to try and stop them, Massena would once again renew his brutal frontal attack against the village of Fuentes de Oñoro. But Wellington, who let's be honest was probably Britain's greatest ever general, realised that the pause in fighting on the 4th was most likely a prelude to exactly this sort of attempt to roll up his lightly defended right. He therefore moved the 7th Division, which was his weakest and least experienced, to stiffen that flank. With hindsight, that does seem a poor decision, doesn't it, by Wellington? It was a de decision that left the 7th Division incredibly exposed, a long way from support. But Wellington was in a difficult spot here. He needed to protect his right flank and keep open the road to Portugal. But he was also determined to stop the French from their attempt to relieve Almeida. He didn't have enough men to successfully do both. The 7th Division under Major General Houston took up their new position. Two battalions were posted inside the village of Pozzobello itself. They were the 85th Foot and the 2nd Casadores of the Portuguese army. The rest were deployed on the open slopes slightly to the west. It was poor ground for a prolonged defence. The 7th Division had been given an incredibly tough task perhaps one better suited to a more experienced division. As the sun rose on the 5th, chasing away the early morning chill, the French began their assault. First into action were the cavalry. William Tomkinson, an officer of the British 16th Light Dragoons, recalled the start of the fight. 
Our two brigades of cavalry scarcely amounted to 900. He's a bit posh, I can tell. And these in bad condition. The enemy had 4,000 fresh cavalry and were driving ours back on the infantry. Major Myers of the Hussars was in advance with two squadrons, one from the 16th and one of his own regiment. Captain Belly had joined from England the day before and taken the command of Ca Captain Cox's squadron. Cox commanded the left. Captain Belly's squadron, with one of the Hussars, was in advance. As the enemy squadrons came on, Major Myers attempted to oppose them in front of a defile. He waited so long and was so indecisive, and the enemy came up so close that he ordered the squadron of the 16th to charge. The enemy's squadron was about twice their strength and waited their charge. This is the only instant I ever met with two bodies of cavalry coming into opposition and both standing, as invariably, as I have observed it, one or the other runs away. Our men rode up and began sabring, but were so outnumbered that they could do nothing, and were obliged to retire across the defile in confusion. The enemy having brought up more troops to that point, Captain Belly was wounded slightly and taken. Sergeant Taylor of his own troop and six men from the squadron were killed on the spot in attempting to rescue him. The enemy cannonaded the cavalry a good deal in retiring, in which we lost Lieutenant Blake of the 16th. He was hit by a four-pound shot in the thigh, and through some mistake the shot was not taken out, and he rode with it to Castel Mendo, where a Portuguese surgeon took it out. Doesn't say if he lived or died. I'd have to do a bit of research on that. Anyway, let's carry on. Shortly afterwards, the beating of drums and the heavy fire of skirmishers indicated the advance of the French infantry into the village of Pozzovello. They soon forced the heavily outnumbered men of the 85th and the 2nd Casadores to withdraw. This was an incredibly dangerous moment. Far from support, in the open and at the mercy of enemy cavalry, these two allied battalions now had a mammoth task ahead of them. The French cavalry, sensing blood, began to attack the disordered troops, soon inflicting heavy casualties on them. The survivors were only rescued from annihilation by the timely intervention of two squadrons of Wellington's German hussars. It was now that Wellington began to realise the extent and scale of the French assault against his right. The entire 7th Division was clearly in great danger, and he couldn't allow them to be enveloped and destroyed. It was time for him to call upon the trusty Light Division once more. They now had General Crawford back from leave, replacing the incompetent and slightly mad General William Erskine. The men were in high spirits as they marched to the sound of the guns. Captain John Kincaid was with them and he wrote, Our battalion was thrown into a wood a little to the left and front of the division engaged and was instantly warmly opposed by the French skirmishers in the course of which I was struck with a musket ball on the left breast, which made me stagger a yard or two backwards, and, as I felt no pain, I concluded that I was dangerously wounded. But it turned out to be owing to my not being hurt. While our operations here were confined to a tame skirmish and our view to the oaks with which we were mingled, we found by the evidence of our ears that the division which we had come to support was involved in a more serious onset, for there was the successive rattle of artillery, the wild hurrah of charging squadrons, and the repulsing volley of musketry. What Kincaid could hear but not clearly see was the 7th Division's battle for survival. 
as French skirmishers and artillery battered the division's front, a brigade of dragoons then attempted to turn their flank and roll them up. Only a brutally effective volley of musketry by the Chasseur Britannique, which was a unit composed mainly of French deserters, checked the charge of the cavalry and brought the division some space to manoeuvre. General Crawford and the Light Division then got into position and relieved the hard-pressed men of the 7th so that they could fall back. The 7th began to withdraw to a new position beyond the Turon stream, closer to the main body of the army, while the Light Division, supported by General Stapleton Cotton's cavalry, were immediately assailed by over 3,000 French horsemen, the best part of three infantry divisions and several batteries of artillery. The great Peninsula War historian William Napier says of this moment, There was not during the war a more dangerous hour for England. Crawford, understanding this and knowing that he couldn't allow his men to be pinned down by artillery or caught in the open by the cavalry, formed his battalions into received cavalry squares as they slowly retired to the north. If you aren't clear about Napoleonic infantry formations, by the way, then the square was literally that. The men would form a hollow square that meant they couldn't be attacked from behind like they could if they were stood in line formation. The bristling wall of bayonets that the square allowed also meant that cavalry horses sensibly refused to get too close. The Light Division maintained perfect order as they withdrew, testament to their training and experience. The historian Jack Weller describes this expert manoeuvring as Crawford's finest hour. Meanwhile, Bull's troop of horse artillery prowled the battlefield, offering much-needed fire support. There was one heart-stopping moment when Captain Norman Ramsay's two guns were completely surrounded by French cavalry. It seemed that all was lost but the men coolly limbered their guns and then drew their swords, slashing and cutting their way through the mass of Frenchmen to safety. Emerging through the smoke to the cheers of their comrades. It's a moment captured in a number of well-known paintings of the battle. As an aside, Bull's Troop is, I believe, still the name of the HQ Troop of 7 RHA, Royal Horse Artillery, the airborne artillery element of the British Army. Anyway, back to our story, and despite suffering some casualties to the French artillery, the Light Division was able to reach the safety of the new British line, unbroken and still in high spirits. They had brought Wellington valuable time to reform his right wing, turning it at right angles and redeploying more of his infantry assets to that side. It now meant that his best road back to safety, though, was cut. The battle was now all or nothing. Massena switched his focus back to the village of Fuentes de Añoro. He wanted a stand-up brawl to smash through the British line with three entire infantry divisions. Thomas Pocock was one of the soldiers waiting for them. Here he is. Down they came, shouting as usual. We kept them at bay in spite of their cries and formidable looks. How different their appearance from ours. Their hats set round with feathers. Their beards long and black gave them a fierce look. Their stature was superior to ours. Most of us were young. We looked like boys, they like savages. But we had the true spirit in us. We foiled them in every attempt to take the town. Until about eleven o'clock when we were overpowered and forced through the streets, contesting every inch. A French dragoon who was dealing death around forced his way up to near where I stood. Every moment I expected to be cut down. 
My piece, he means his gun, was empty. There was not a moment to lose. I got a stab at him beneath the ribs, upwards. He gave a backstroke before he fell and cut the stock of my musket in two. Thus I stood unarmed. I soon got another, though, and fell to work again. Proper Glasgow lad, isn't he? Anyway, just behind the village were the hard-fighting Irishmen of the 88th. Among them was Captain William Grattan, who you may remember from, from our episode about the Battle of Busaco a couple of months ago. He recalled that every street and every angle of the street were the different theatres of the combatants. This is a quote. Inch by inch was gained and lost in turn. Whenever the enemy were forced back, fresh troops and fresh energy on the part of their officers impelled them on again. And towards midday, the town presented a shocking sight. Our Highlanders lay dead in heaps, while the other regiments, though less remarkable in dress, were scarcely so in the numbers of their slain. The French grenadiers, with their immense caps and gaudy plumes, in piles of twenty and thirty together, some dead, others wounded, with barely strength sufficient to move. Their exhausted state and the weight of their cumbrous appointments, making it impossible for them to crawl out of range of the dread, dreadful fire of grape and round shot which the enemy poured into the town. Great numbers perished in this way, and many were pressed to death in the streets. But the French, in their desperation, just kept on coming, and eventually, through sheer weight of numbers, they pushed the redcoats out and onto the slopes beyond the village. At this point, Grattan witnessed the conversation between his regiment's commanding officer, Colonel Wallace, and Edward Packenham, who was actually uh, Wellington's brother-in-law, that led to the decisive counterattack. This is a quote. Wallace, with his regiment, the 88th, was in reserve on the high ground which overlooked the churchyard, and he was attentively looking on at the combat which raged below, when Sir Edward Packenham galloped up to him and said, Do you see that, Wallace? I do, replied the colonel and I would rather drive the French out of town than cover a retreat across the Coa. Perhaps, said Sir Edward. His lordship, though, don't think it tenable. Wallace said, I shall take it with my regiment and keep it too. Will you now, was the reply. I'll go and tell Lord Wellington. See here, here he comes. In a moment or two, Pakenham returned at a gallop, and waving his hat, called out, He says you may go. Come along, Wallace. Grattan picks up the story again shortly afterwards as his men went forward. The battalion advanced with fixed bayonets in column of sections, left in front in double-quick time, their firelocks at the trail. As it passed down the road leading to the chapel, it was warmly cheered by the troops that lay at each side of the wall. But the soldiers made no reply to this greeting. They were placed in a situation of great distinction, and they felt it. They were going to fight not only under the eye of their own army in general, but also in view of every soldier in the French army. But although their feelings were wrought up to the highest pitch of enthusiasm, not one hurrah responded to the shouts that welcomed their advance. There was no noise or talking in the ranks. The men stepped together at a smart trot as if on parade, headed by their brave colonel. It so happened that the command of the company which led this attack devolved upon me. When we came within sight of the French 9th Regiment, which were drawn up at the corner of the chapel waiting for us, I turned around to look at the men of my company. They gave me a cheer that a lapse of many years has not made me forget.' 
and I thought that that moment was the proudest of my life. The soldiers did not look as men usually do going into a close fight. Pale, the trots down the road had heightened their complexions, and they were the picture of everything that a chosen body of troops ought to be. The enemy, though, were not idle spectators of this movement. They witnessed its commencement, and the regularity with which the advance was conducted made them fearful of the result. A battery of eight-pounders advanced at a gallop to an olive grove on the opposite bank of the river, hoping by the effect of its fire to annihilate the 88th Regiment, or, at all events, embarrass its movements as much as possible. But this battalion continued to press on, joined by its exhausted comrades, and the battery did little execution. He's speaking about his regiment in the third person, which uh, is a bit confusing, but don't be, don't be confused. On reaching the village, the 88th was vigorously opposed by the French 9th Regiment, supported by some hundred of the Imperial Guard. They weren't Imperial Guard, they just looked like it. But it soon closed in with them, and aided by the brave fellows that had so gallantly fought in the town all morning, drove the enemy through the different streets at the point of the bayonet, and at length forced them into the river that separated the two armies. Several of our men fell on the French side of the water. About 150 of the grenadiers of the guard, they weren't from the guard, he keeps making that mistake. They were a sort of unit of grenadiers who were put together. A bit like the British did with light troops, the French had done with their bearskin wearing grenadiers, hence the confusion. Anyway, carry on. In their flight, ran down a street that had been barricaded by us the day before, and which was one of the few that escaped the fury of the morning's assault. But... Their disappointment was great upon arriving at the bottom to find themselves shut in. Mistakes of this kind will sometimes occur, and when, we, when they do, the result is easily imagined. Troops advancing to assault a town, uncertain of success or flushed with victory, have no great time to deliberate as to what they will do. The thing is generally done in half the time the deliberation would occupy. In the present instance, every man was put to death. So that was a pretty long-winded way of saying they caught these French grenadiers down a dead end and massacred them. I think that that line gives a sense of how brutal the gutter fighting in the village was. It was a real bayonet fight to the death in those narrow streets. But the British were successful and by 2pm the French had lost their stomach for the contest and the fighting soon fizzled out. It wasn't yet clear if the battle was over. Neither side was ready to withdraw. That night... Expecting another French attack in the morning, Wellington ordered his troops to dig in. Massena, incredibly frustrated once again by Wellington and the Allied troops, was forced to withdraw. It was to be his last battle in the peninsula. When he returned to Ciudad Rodrigo two days later, his letter of dismissal was waiting for him from Napoleon. Despite his experience and his pedigree as a general, he had been bested by Wellington at every turn. But Fuentes de Oñoro had been an incredibly close-run battle, maybe closer than Massena realised. Wellington famously said afterwards, If Boney had been there, we should have been beat. The battle had cost the British over 1,500 casualties, and the French close to 3,000. And so, for a short time at least, the British army and their allies in the north could once again rest easy, knowing that they had done their duty. But in the south, Marshal Beresford and his men were about to fight the bloodiest and most controversial British battle of the entire war, the Battle of Albuera. But that's a story for another day. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. 
It's set up well for next month's episode, which I think should be the most exciting one so far this season. To discuss the Battle of Albuera, the bloodiest of the war, I'll be joined by Marcus Beresford, who is a descendant of the Marshal himself. I'll also be joined by Mark Thompson and Marcus Cribb. It'll be the first time I've done a kind of group debate format for this podcast, so I think it's one to really look forward to. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that. I also plan, time permitting, to send all my newsletter subscribers a PDF of the transcript of that episode. So be sure to visit www.redcoathistory.com redcoathistory.com and sign up for my monthly dispatch. All right, guys, take care. See you next month.